hello, everybody, and thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. My apologies for not publishing an episode last week. I was a little under the weather, nothing too serious, just a little cold, but my throat hurt. And so talking for 30 minutes with your throat hurting is not generally recommended as positive practice when you're sick. So I skipped, but I'm very excited to be back today. And we have been touched by a bit of providential providence, if you will. That's obviously redundant, but last week our lesson was on the 10 plagues and then kind of tacked on the end Passover, which, okay, Passover is not something to tack on to the end of a lesson, but the 10 plagues are kind of the 10 plagues. You know, there's like, there's lots of good things to learn there, but a lot of people kind of know that. But Jason at Solid Rock actually talked about Passover last week during the main service. So if you are interested on some Passover info, you can stream the sermon from last Sunday, this past Sunday, the uh, 6th of February. And there's some good Passover information, a lot that a ton of that I was totally unaware of. So it was very helpful for me too. But that's why I say we have been touched by providence because God has allowed for us to have a, a great explanation of Passover readily available the very week we didn't have the Bible breakdown. So there you go. If you're interested in listening to that, you can go and do that. It was very helpful, insightful on Passover. And also another bit of exciting news for the Bible breakdown. As of last week, we have reached 1,000 plays of the Bible breakdown, which is uh, really an opportunity for me to say thank you to everybody who has listened and been kind and given kind words and been supportive. Uh, it's a ton of fun for me. I, I hope that you can hear it in my voice every week that I just really enjoy doing this and it's a ton of fun for me. So for it to be, I hope it's been beneficial to you as well. Um, but very excited to announce that. It's a pretty fun, pretty fun milestone. So I'm appreciative of y'all and uh, we've got, we got more in us. So uh, if you'll keep listening, I'll keep recording them. So, all right, this week we are going to be talking about a little bit, the parting of the Red Sea. It's going to start in Exodus 13, if you're curious. Um, I want to hit just a couple things from last week, so I don't want to obviously reinvent the wheel on Passover. As I just mentioned at the beginning, there's some good exposition of that available to you. Um, we may not actually get that much to the part where God actually parts the Red Sea. There's kind of some stuff in the run-up that I'd prefer to hit, uh, but we will we will gloss over it real quick. But there are a couple things from last week I want to make sure that we just touch on real briefly um, related to the lesson so that we're kind of just all on the same page as we go into this one and don't feel like we're just missing a chunk where we go from burning bush to Red Sea. There's a lot in between there, right? So there, the things that I wanted to mention first, so the 10 plagues, a lot of people are familiar with the story of the 10 plagues, and it can be fun to try to figure out if you can remember all 10 of them. I forgot at least one when I was trying to do it just from memory. So, but it is uh, well known, at least as an idea, even if you can't remember all 10 of them. And the thing I just wanted to hit on that from last week is that the significance of these plagues, it was not just, um, it was not just a time of judgment on the people of Egypt and the king of Egypt, though it was that, but ultimately the 10 plagues are a show of God's power over the false gods of the Egyptians. So, um, a couple of examples of that. So the uh, Egyptian people effectively worshipped the Nile River because it was the source of so much of their livelihood that 
who was kind of like a like a god to them. Um, and then the sun god of Egypt named Ra, um, who was sometimes actually represented by the sun. Um, those are two examples. Whereas you know the Nile was turned to blood, the um, sun was uh, there was darkness over the whole land even during the middle of the day was one of the plagues. So just two examples. But it, what we see in the ten plagues is an opportunity really for the people of Egypt to see that. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is more powerful than the gods that they worship who are false gods and ultimately um, do not have any sort of deity that belongs only to Yahweh, only to God himself. Uh, Second, um, the other thing that comes up regularly through the Ten Plagues narrative is this uh, Pharaoh's like hardening his heart, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and that kind of like back and forth. Um, But broad overview of that, looking at it as that, as an opportunity, again, for God to show who he is to the Egyptians, which we can ultimately consider an act of grace. So the fact that Pharaoh um, did not allow the people of Egypt or of Israel to leave Egypt gave God basically um, the opportunity to show more of who he is. And yes, it came in the form of plagues and they were not enjoyable, but ultimately we should view this as an act of grace and not an act of cruelty, though there is definitely a a judgment component to that as well for enslaving a people for 400 years. Um, So, but also we have to look at it in a way that if the people in Egypt had to go through some frogs and flies and boils and stuff like that to know who God is, then we would say that's worth it. Even like with the harshness of the uh, death of the firstborn, again, it's a, there's a judgment aspect to it, but it's also a way that the people of Egypt could know who God was. So um, looking at that, not just through the lens of somebody's stubbornness, but also as like this kind of difficult concept of um, the fact that in suffering, we sometimes see most who God is. And for us to know who God is, since he is the only God, is what we are designed for. So keeping that in mind, as far as the like, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? If you want, if you want more information on that, you can harass and harangue me until I explain it to you. I guess we don't have time today. Um, and then the last thing that uh, from last week that I want to make sure we just briefly touch on is the Passover. It honestly should probably get its own lesson. The fact that you have to try to just tag that on to the end of the ten plagues is a little ridiculous because it is the it is the beginning of the biggest celebration in the entire Jewish calendar. And we're going to see that when Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples right before his death, that's when he is going to institute uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, whatever you you call it, the Lord's table. Um, so that's kind of this transition to communion is now this symbol of, of the new covenant with with Jesus, the, uh, the bread and the wine. And so Passover is super important. So um, we're it is an important thing to understand, not just from a standpoint of what actually happened, but what it represents and and what it was to the people of Israel for thousands of years. So those are just the things I wanted to briefly touch on from last week, just to kind of um, make sure that those things get a little bit of attention, just so you know they're important. So now another part of the calendar of the Jewish festival calendar is going to get added in Exodus 13. And that is where we start in verse 3, going to be reading through verse 10. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. 
today in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So this next memorial, another very important uh, part of the uh, Jewish calendar is this the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and so, again, this is just like um, they will celebrate Passover when they enter the land of Canaan. So this is what the Lord tells Moses to tell the people um, is that when when you when I bring you into the land, that's what it says in verse five. That's when this is now to kind of start to be instituted. So it will be incorporated into the law here at the end of Exodus and then uh, restated throughout um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament as we see it and uh, then restated also in Deuteronomy. So, um, and then some probably gets a good mention for the priests in Leviticus as well. But this is something that's going to be instituted in the time there at the promised land. Now, at this point, if we remember, they're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They don't know that. They have not yet made the choices that are going to lead to that. But one day when they get there, they will celebrate that. And then even up until the time of Jesus, these feasts, uh, and then past the time of Jesus, these feasts um, were celebrated and for um, many devout Jews, they still celebrate these feasts um, and these festivals and this calendar and Passover. So these are these are a big deal, and I want to make sure that we that we hit that uh, at the end. We'll talk a little bit about the significance of them. But basically, what Moses is telling the people, coming from and all of this, of course, coming from God to Moses, then to the people, um, this feast was to remember the Exodus and that God had freed them from slavery. So just like in Passover, they had bread with no leaven. So it kind of represents for Passover. And it's, I think, similar probably for why the Feast of Unleavened Bread has this. Uh, it It's this idea that when they were being brought out of the land on the, on the Passover uh, day, when the uh, angel of the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites who had put the lamb's blood on their doorposts, that basically they were eating this meal, like ready to go. Like they, I think they had their shoes on. If they had a staff, they had it in hand and they're eating this meal. And uh, it's basically the idea that they didn't have time for the bread to rise. So it was so quick that um, it's an unleavened bread because they didn't even have time to wait for the bread to rise. So um, it's a, also a symbol. It will come to be viewed also as a symbol of this purity and being set apart. Um, Jesus is going to say a little leaven, uh, leavens the whole, ruins the whole lump. Um, so there's also this kind of symbolism too of um, maybe impurity or things that can distract um, God's people from um, what they're called to as his holy and consecrated people. So it's a, uh, a reminder, not only in the fact they're having a feast, but even the nature of the feast by it being of unleavened bread to remind them of when God brought them out of Egypt. So Another one that gets added to the calendar, an important thing that they are going to begin celebrating. 
Uh, and then there's also going to be this talk of the consecration of the firstborn here, starting back up in verse 11 of chapter 13. It says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, and when in time to come your son, ask you, whoa, crazy English there. What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so this other uh, order is given to them in terms to to consecrate the firstborn of the animals and sons. So basically, this idea that any of the firstborn animals are to be sacrificed to God, um, unless it's a donkey. So it's basically the kind of the line that gets drawn. It's probably not just donkeys. But uh, the firstborn of an animal that would theoretically provide you with food. So rather than like a beast of burden. So again, like a lamb and an ox might um, other animals that maybe would provide meat rather than just like a simple pack animal. So what the order is for the pack animals is that they need a lamb substitute. So basically, you know, your firstborn lamb is already being sacrificed. So maybe your second born or maybe just a nice one from your flock to take the place of the donkey. Um, and if you don't do that, then you're supposed to break its neck. So the idea is not that donkeys are the worst or that it's fun to break animals' necks, but rather that the first and most important, like, goes that it goes to God. And so not saying, well, it's a donkey, so I don't have to give my best to God. There's still a requirement to sacrifice this before the Lord, which is ultimately a recognition of who God is and how he provides. Um, and so it's not an opportunity for you to say, well, it's a donkey, so I don't have to give up anything. He says, well, if you can't sacrifice anything in place of the donkey, then you got to kill the donkey. God doesn't want it as a sacrifice, but you can't have it either, is kind of the idea. So basically, I feel like a lot of these things, they just kind of come up because God for, foresees how people are going to try to get around the law and uh, not do what they're supposed to do out of a good heart. And so he sets us up some, some nice little boundaries there. And then, of course, when it comes to the sons, um, they are not sacrificed. Cannot be clearer about that. This consecration of the firstborn does not apply to humans, um, but they are also like the donkeys, but for a very different reason, uh, must be redeemed. So just like it says that they redeem the donkey, you must redeem a son. So the same idea, you got to give a sacrifice um, in the for the firstborn son specifically. And now why... Do they do that? Is that just because they are trying population control on the lambs and the donkeys? No, it's a reminder of really the the incident of the Passover, again, is really what it's a reminder of. Because you'll remember the 10th and final plague on Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And that applied both to uh, livestock and to the people of Egypt. So it's a reminder that God took the firstborn um, and then... It, it shows also on the human side the mercy that he showed during Passover, that those who were obedient to what Moses told them to do, um, that 
the angel of the Lord passed over them. And so it's another one of these reminders. Okay. And then also just in general, and this is kind of an, an example, but when we talk about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, these this is a system that points toward Jesus' redemption on our behalf. Okay. So the Old Testament points to the redemption in Jesus, like, oh, oh, absolutely overwhelmingly, absolutely overwhelmingly. When you read the Old Testament, if you already know about Jesus and you can like have a mind to say, hmm, I wonder if this points for Jesus. There are just so many examples as we look so many, what we might call uh, types like Christ types, things that point us to Jesus, but are not at all um, fully who Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these types. Um, later, the uh, author of Hebrews is going to refer to these things as a shadow. And of course, we know the shadow is not the substance. The substance casts a shadow, Jesus being that substance. And so it's not a time where we say, come on, all you people, when Jesus was there, can't you see that he was obviously exactly what all the Old Testament was pointing toward? We have to always remind ourselves we have the benefit of all of Scripture and we get to have um, the Holy Spirit through these biblical authors pointing these things out to us and it makes it a lot clearer to us. But anytime you're reading in the Old Testament and you see something that's being redeemed, something that's being given on behalf of another, that's a, a pointing forward to what Christ will ultimately do. So instead of, you know, lambs and bulls and goats, um, ultimately he's going to be the final sacrifice. If you want a nice little New Testament exposition on the sacrificial system, uh, Hebrews 9, 11 through Hebrews 10, 18 has got a really great, the author of Hebrews gives a really great explanation of the sacrificial system and how it was a shadow of Christ's ultimate work. So if you are kind of curious, what does the new, what does the Bible say about the Bible on this? Um, that is a great way to, uh, a great lens for us as New Testament believers to have on the sacrificial system. So uh, that reference again, Hebrews 9, 11 through Hebrews 10, 18. So after they start with those kind of expectations for when they get to the promised land, which again is going to be even longer than they think because they're going to be disobedient. Spoiler for a couple weeks from now. But they set off on this journey toward the promised land. And during the day, they are led by a pillar of cloud and at night, a pillar of fire. So um, I guess maybe their celestial navigation wasn't um, super um, honed in, but you can follow a cloud, right? Or a pillar of fire seems easy. So that's what they did. Um, and they also, this is nice. They took Joseph's remains. Remember, Joseph is the one who brought them effectively to Egypt. And I know it didn't like work out all that great in the end because they ended up in slavery. But at the time, it was really great. Um, it was more because of the sinfulness of the Egyptians that it didn't turn out so great. But Joseph was the one who got all his family, uh, about 70 members of his household, um, to Egypt. And they lived there because of the famine that he helped save them from. So they took Joseph's remains with them to bury him in the promised land. Because remember, he had, he had lived there already. And he had been sold into slavery and then... Um, the family moved because of the famine, but that was where he lived. So after 400 years, it does make you wonder what exactly was left. So that's why I kind of put remains. It says Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. I don't know that we can expect that his 
bones held up super well over 400 years. Maybe they did. Maybe they had some sort of uh, embalming they did or some sort of preservation that made them kind of like a, like, you know, a Egyptian uh, mummy or something like that. Who knows? You know what? I don't. So I'm going to quit talking about it. So they leave Joseph's remains bones. So in tow. Okay. I promise that's the last time I'm not going to talk about it anymore. They're headed out and good old Pharaoh, we get back into his mind and he's very fickle man this pharaoh and guess what good old pharaoh changes his minds again and he says what are we doing we let all this free labor go we got to go back and get them so he gets his chariots and gets his horsemen and they go back after the israelites um who are a very very large group um, I think some estimates are about like maybe about a million Israelites were a part of the Exodus. So I hope they had enough. Since they had like 600 chariots, I think they might need a few more. Um, but anyways, they chase after them. Actually, it turns out it's probably better they didn't bring any more once we get to the end of the story. But the people of Israel then see the Egyptians. I'm sure they probably saw the dust cloud of them and they start to panic. And this is going to become a common theme for Moses having to deal with things like this. But in uh, chapter 14, 10 through 14, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So the Israelites come back at Moses with just crazy sass. Like, this is so much sass right here. Were there no graves left in Egypt that you had to take us here to die in the wilderness? Like, come on, guys. That's that's pretty, that was uncalled for. But, yep, they complain and they say, see, we never even wanted to leave Egypt. We're mad that you freed us from slavery. What is God doing to us? And Moses obviously is not quite worn down by the people yet. He really keeps his cool. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. And um, he assures them that it's going to be, taken care of. So what God does here is pretty spectacular and gets us kind of to the uh, title of our story here. So God tells Moses to stretch out his hand. And um, that probably involves that this staff that um, Moses has been using, the one that he casts in front of the Egyptians, it turns into a snake, you know, those kind of things. It's kind of um, become this sort of uh, totem that represents God's power. And uh, it says that God parts the sea. So they're coming up to the Red Sea says, God parts the sea with a strong east wind. So um, that in itself is not just a description of phenomenon, but also something that uh, connotes judgment. So I read that in a, a commentary here on Exodus, that this is kind of a, the strong east wind is got this idea of judgment with it. And it's also, it's mentioned as what brings the locusts uh, during the plagues. So there's part of that. Was it also was it also windy that day? Seems likely, I suppose. Though uh, maybe more of a uh, a wind that 
was an omen rather than something that necessarily caused um, all of the water to stand as it is. That'd be one powerful win. Um, so I, I've heard some attempts at some like kind of naturalistic explanations of how the Red Sea happened. Like there was an earthquake that caused like the water to separate and dry ground or like some like cliff or something, some boulder fell into the ocean and caused it. Listen, naturalistic explanations are nice. And oftentimes like we do see the Lord work through things that we would maybe consider natural, um, you know, not saying that his work through those things is not supernatural, but maybe we see God's work through some natural things. And so like, if like I'm never one to really, um, hate on a naturalistic explanation because God can use the natural for his purposes, just like the supernatural. <laughs> but the idea that like a rock falling in a sea would, uh, or an earthquake could cause literally like the water to stand up into like two walls of water and then, and then a, have time for like a million people to cross and it stay up. Um, I'm going to call foul on that one and say this is pretty clearly miraculous. This is clearly something that God has done for his people and used um, supernatural means uh, to do. So Israel makes it on dry ground, it says, with walls of water on either side. So some other, you know, there. I'm sure this is not a secret to y'all. There are people who are not interested in believing the Bible and they're like, oh, it's probably just like a bog or something like that. The words here used... The walls of water um, connote these like city walls. So ones that would be, you know, many, many feet high cubits, if we're going to speak Bible measurement. Um, and so it's not meant to be like, oh, yeah, it was really windy. And part of a bog became a little bit drier. Like I, that's not really what we're looking at here. So um, for Egypt, though, it doesn't go so well. Once the Israelites cross, um, then uh, God releases the water and it uh, takes away the Egyptians who were chasing them. So again, another uh, option, another time where we see um, God's power exhibited and we also see um, judgment on the actions of the Egyptians. So that's pretty much the story of the Red Sea and the surrounding feasts and important things. So just as we look at some application, um, one thing that we also see in the Old Testament, like I mentioned, we see just a lot of the of Jesus in the sacrificial system. But something else we see a lot in the Old Testament that I think we have to learn from is just this idea of remembrance and memorial. Remember these two things that we read of uh, at the beginning, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, also before that Passover, and then even this consecration of the firstborn. All of these are meant to help the people remember what God has done for them. And I think as God's people, even in the New Testament, we need to make a practice of remembering God's goodness in our lives. We need to take time to reflect on what God has done, where we've been, where God has led us, because we know just as the Israelites learn, um, we are people who are quick to forget. And we're quick to forget um, the importance of what God has done in our lives. So it's only natural that we set ourselves reminders. We set ourselves reminders when it's time to wake up and when it's time to take our medicine and things like that, we should set some reminders for um, what God's done for us. Um, taking time to celebrate God's goodness in our lives, having memorials of some sort. Maybe it's a, a photo. Maybe it's some sort of art. Maybe it's a, a scripture that meant something to you at some point uh, when God was working in a really powerful way in your life. 
whatever that may be, um, some sort of memorabilia to to call to mind what God was doing in the t- that time. And then also by sharing God's goodness with others, sharing what God has done for you in the past with others. So not only are you reminded, but you also get to share with someone else what God's done in your life and give them the hope that he's also working in their life and the encouragement. Um, and then finally, just another application um, is just remembering the really the eminence of God's glory, um, that we exist to glorify God. God is our creator. He's the only one who deserves glory to be made known. He has graciously chosen to want a relationship with us. And that is just another thing to give him glory and praise for. But um, just like these events that we read about in Exodus bring him great glory because he shows who he is to the people of Israel and to the world, um, we should take great joy in him being glorified. We should take great joy in giving him glory and not trying to somehow divert it from him or like saying, oh yeah, big rock fell in the sea or to, of course, not point it toward ourselves, Uh, but to recognize that God is the one who deserves to be known. For God to seek his own glory is an act of his goodness because he's the only one who can hold up to being glorified because he's the only one worthy of it. When we glorify ourselves, we set our other people up and ourselves for failure because we can't live up to the kind of glory, to any kind of glory that we would receive. Instead, it all goes to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see here in Exodus that God glorifies himself, making himself known and seeing this ultimately as an act of his goodness and his love. So that can also be a focus of our life that we remember the things God has done. We tell people, about what he's done and all of it for his glory.